We've called this series Steadfast, so that we might rejoice and know that our never-changing, steadfast God and who He is. And I pray we see that this morning. The year was 1505, just a few years ago. And a young German law student was returning back to school after a brief break at home. It was a hot, humid July day, not unlike maybe something that we're experiencing right now. But it began to rain on his walk back to university, and that eventually that rain turned into a storm. And that storm began to, to burst quite quickly, and there was a lightning bolt that struck very close to him, and it caused him to even fall on the ground. You guys have felt that thunder and lightning sometimes that just shakes the very ground underneath you, and you can feel it kind of in, even in your chest. Well, this man felt that. He fell to the ground, and as he fell to the ground, he cried out, Satan, help me, I will become a monk. Now, not many of you have said that in the last few nights, you know, during the midst of some of our storms. But some of you might know that the man described there was none other than the great reformer Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, in the midst of that storm, cried out, and that led him to the priesthood, which the priesthood led him to the scriptures, and the scriptures led him to a great spiritual awakening where he beheld Christ, and that he, the great Reformation doctrine, that we are justified by faith alone. Uh, through in Christ alone, by grace alone, that to the glory of God alone, that it is only through faith that we can be saved. And this changed the world. And I'll talk about more about Luther later in the sermon. But the story there serves to illustrate that when storms arise in life, all of us look out for something to hold us. All of us look out for some kind of stability. Imagine, again, you're in Luther's situation there. But imagine, again, you're alone. You're not in some nice vehicle. You're not in a building. You're alone in the woods when a thunderstorm arises. You're seeking for some kind of protection, aren't you? And all of us, whether it's physical protection, you know, a, a ship needs an anchor in the midst of, of a bad storm. A house on the beach needs footers that are deep in the ground to withstand a hurricane. An army needs a fortress to withstand against an invading enemy or siege. You know, but for some of us, you know, it's not necessarily a physical thing that we need. Certainly we need those in those physical circumstances. But, but in the midst of crazy storms, there might be some who reach out for spirituality. Might call it a foxhole conversion, right? That the life is getting challenging. I need to reach out for all of a sudden I, I recognize I need something. This isn't enough of what I've put my trust in. Some might look for some kind of mysticism. You know, you're, you're maybe not superstitious. You're just a little stitious. <laughs> so you're reaching for something, though, that, will, that would like appease the gods or the spirits that are there. And like, well, if I just wear the same socks every day or if I rub this thing or light this candle, well, maybe that will take care of my problems in the storm. Maybe we looking for the fortress of our bank account or our health. But we're, everybody's looking for something that will give them security in the midst of the storms. And last week in our Psalm, Psalm 44, a, a, a admittedly difficult psalm. Unexplainable suffering. The psalmist cries out for God. When we read in those final few verses, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That, that entire psalm could be described as a type of storm that arises. And the psalmist is crying out to God in the midst of those challenges. He sounds like someone on a deserted island who's simply yelling, help, help. 
So Psalm 46, though, Psalm 46 is where we find the fortress. If in Psalm 44 we see the cry of our heart, we see the cry of distress, Psalm 46, then, is where we find the anchor. It's where we find our security. It's where we find the fortress. We learn that God is a fortress who secures his people. So as you turn to Psalm 46, John Jones is going to come and read uh, Psalm 46 for us. We just introduced John last week. Um, Him and his wife Sherry have returned from France and are here with us now. John is going to be one of our care pastors, and we're grateful for him. So if you would, in honor of the reading of God's word, please stand as John reads Psalm 46 for us. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. In trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. <clears throat> there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is God's word. You may be seated. So our main idea today, if you're following on your worship program, is that God is a fortress who secures his people. Now, most of your Bibles likely include the word Selah in the margin. We don't know exactly what that term means. We we want to especially caution reading too much uh, spirituality into it. Uh, But what it likely is, is a type of liturgical or musical symbol that the people of God, Israel, would have recognized. And you'll notice that it's used three times in this psalm. And what that likely indicates is that it's, uh, those are three stanzas or three verses to this hymn. So God is a fortress. And if he is a fortress, we need to think about then these three verses as a, as a type of building block of the fortress. So we'll see three building blocks of God's fortress, of how God is a fortress. And what's remarkable about this psalm in each one of the verses is that we see a description of God And then we see how that description changes God's people or encourages God's people to secure us. So again, God is a fortress who secures his people. And these building blocks of God's fortress are his strength, his presence, and his work. And that, that creates the kind of security in who we are. So the first building block is God's strength. God is our strength, so we have no need to fear. God is our strength, so we have no need to fear. 
A well-known sentence by a theologian, A.W. Tozer, in a very well-known book, Knowledge of the Holy, it's, the book starts with this sentence. What comes to, into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And verse 1 should be one of those phrases or a phrase that comes to mind when we think about God. Look at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. One commentator says that, that this, the psalm begins with a burst of confidence. For any of us who need that, we need that uh, cup of coffee as soon as, uh, virtually as soon as we wake up in the morning, we need that burst to get us going. Well, this is a burst of energy like no other, uh, no, no coffee drink can quite give you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in struggle or in trial and trouble. The word refuge there can refer to a type of shelter that one would use in a, in a storm or even in war. So again, remember, if you're in the middle of the woods when the midst of a thunderstorm begins to uh, come up, you're going to be looking for something to hide in. You're going to be looking for something to give you refuge. The storm that woke me up on Friday evening, and I can only imagine what it would have been like to be out in the middle of that by myself. You'd be searching for refuge. We're over a year into the war in Ukraine. Imagine to be one of those Ukrainians when the, the Russian army comes into your village. You're going to be looking for refuge. You're looking for something to hide in, some kind of protection. Well, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of any invading army coming to us, God is our refuge. But then notice it goes on to say that God is our strength. He is the one who empowers us. It's almost as if the word refuge is given as a sense of protection, this umbrella or, or shelter of protection of God's people. But then even in the midst of, while they're compromised there, they're protected there from the invading army, then God is our strength. He's the one who's empowering us. He's the one who's resourcing us so that we might be strong, that we might be successful. And then there's another description of, of who God is or what he's doing. He is a very present help in trouble. A present help in trouble. The ESV has a, has a footnote that says another way to translate this could be that he is a very proven, he's a well-proved help. See, the people of Israel would have known, they would have known their stories. They would have seen how God is that mighty fortress who secures his people. They would have seen how he had acted in the past. He was reliable. God is a refuge in strength, a present help in our time of trial. So therefore, it changes. God's character leads his people to be transformed. God's character changes his people. So how does the verse continue? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, in light of who God is, therefore, we will not fear. We will not fear. Now, up until this point, this is a wonderful verse that looks great on a coffee mug. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. That sounds amazing when things are going well. That's easy to sing when we don't have trials. But can you sing that song? Can you confess that truth when everything around you is crumbling? 
Look at how the verse continues. We will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, the psalmist is not trying to encourage us in the midst of our success that, that we do not need to fear because God is our refuge and strength. He's trying to encourage us in the midst, while everything around, while everything else in life is crumbling, that's when we know where our trust is. See, we, we don't discover what we really trust when life seems easy, do we? We discover what we really trust in the storms of life, what we reach out for, what we think will hold us. Someone has used the, the illustration about, you know, reaching out. It's as if you're falling off a cliff and you're reaching on for, for the branch on the side of the mountain to keep you from falling the rest of the way down. That's where we discover what we really trust. And God says, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength. We find, we find shelter from him. We are resourced and empowered by him. He's a very present help in time of trouble. He's with us in the midst of our difficulties. When the earth gives way, when the mountains are moved, when the sea roars, that's when we don't need to fear because God is with us. Do you find God is a refuge? Is God your strength in the midst of your trouble? See, we need to see this passage in, in two different spheres. We, we need to see it both in the now and the not yet. We need to see it in the present and in the future. Maybe you resonated last week with Psalm 44. And you felt you feel right now the difficulties of your life. You feel the sufferings and the, the, the trial. And you're crying out very similar to the psalmist. God, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Will you change my circumstances? And you need to know that God is your refuge and strength now. You might feel this on a, on a very physical level. Maybe in the midst of you know, our, our world, our creation is subject to sin. God created the world and everything in it and everything was good. But, but when human beings, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were subject to the curse of the fall. But so was the very world. Every weed in your flower beds is a result of human sin. And far worse are the hurricanes, the tsunamis, the tornadoes, the floods, everything. Romans 8 tells us that the creation itself groans waiting for the day of redemption. So, so God's people at times can feel very the physical challenges of this life that are pressing in. And they need to know that God is a refuge even in those difficulties. But maybe in a more metaphorical sense, maybe you feel it as if the whole world is crumbling before you. Broken political systems, financial crisis, where do you turn in the midst of those storms? Where do you turn in the midst of that kind of devastation? See, brothers and sisters, God is your refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. So you have no need to fear in the midst of any storm of life. Trust him. Find him reliable in the midst of your sorrows and circumstances. Is God your refuge? We also need to look at this in a forward way. 
There's also a sense in which this psalm points us to the end of time. Commentator Jim Hamilton writes uh, of these verses. He says, these verses declare that the people of God will find him to be a strong refuge and an ever-present help when the world as we know it comes to an end. The cosmic disruption described here points to the final end of history when the justice pleasure of God purges creation of everything that has defiled the world he made pure. The Bible talks all over the place about the, the second coming of Christ, about his return. And when he returns, he will judge the world with incredible judgment and fire. One that, that if it wasn't for the sake of his plan and his people, no one could survive. He will judge all the world. He'll, he'll remake, he'll refine the earth by fire through that judgment. He will come to, to change everything that's there. So as that's described in Psalm 46, we will feel that in a sense. The mountains will crumble. They'll shake. It'll be as if they're cast into the sea. It'll, it'll feel like everything is raging. But a believer in those moments has no need to fear. Because God is a refuge and strength. He's a very help. He's a very present help in time of trouble. So do not fear. See, if, if you're nervous about the return of Christ, about that judgment, then, then you don't find him as the refuge. You find him as the storm itself. And if that's the case, that means you don't have a right relationship with Christ. If you find him the storm and not the refuge, that means you, you have yet to repent of your sin. You have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And if you are, you are left out of that relationship with God, then you have every reason to be terrified of his coming. Because he's the storm, not the refuge. But if you've trusted in Christ for salvation from sin... If you've believed on his name above any other name, if you've repented of your sin and thrown your, yourself completely on Christ, then you'll find him to be a refuge in the midst of that storm. Now, many people, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, we have these two different ways of thinking. Some can be just way too laissez-faire and to think, oh, it's all going to work out in the end, so I don't need to really worry about it. Others can be so concerned that it's almost as if they're not hopeful. Did you read what's in the news? This could be it. I think it's going to be, you know, on this date and time. And, and sometimes we live as if the second coming of Christ is something to be sensational about rather than confident of. Peter writes about how believers should live in light of the second coming of Christ. I love this passage. 1 Peter 4, 7 says this. The end of all things is at hand. Full stop. This is where we would expect, get your go bag ready. This could be tough. Are you prepared? The end of all things is at hand. Listen, therefore be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. The, the end is going to come. Christ is going to return. And he says, love one another. Serve your local church. Have one another over for dinner. That, that's what it means to live confidently in light of the return of Christ. To be watchful, 
to be waiting and to know that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. That's our first building block. God is our strength, therefore we have no need to fear. Second building block is God's presence. God's presence. God is present, so we are not alone. God is present, so we are not alone. Now these next few verses, verses 4 through 7, can be quite challenging to understand. And it likely communicates something more specific than what I'm going to talk about this morning. And yet I do think that we see God's presence as the underlying reality of all these things. Listen to verse 4. This is, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. See, there's this theme of God's presence here. He'll dwell with them. He'll be in their midst. That is central to this psalm, and it's central to all the scripture. And I want to briefly go through five ways we see the presence of God manifested among us. Five ways we see the, uh, the presence of God among us. The first is in the garden, the garden of Eden. When God created uh, the earth and everything in it, he created a garden and he put Adam and Eve in there to cultivate it. And the garden became the place where God would dwell with his people. In Genesis 2, we see that God comes to to, uh, walk with them in the cool of the day. God, God is using the garden to preside with his people. But human sin is what distances human beings from God. Because of their sin, there is a chasm then between a holy God and sinful man. So in light of the in light of their sin, God judges Adam and Eve. He casts them out of the garden and he places a cherubim at the gate of the garden with a flaming sword, essentially with a big keep out sign. God has designed the world and his, and his creation and his image bearers to have relationship with one another, but human sin has created a chasm between them. But God is not done with that. He, he still looks for ways to preside among his people. So the second way we see God's presence manifested on the earth is through his temple or the tabernacle. The tabernacle described in Exodus, it's being built, and it's, it's built with this new creation theme. It's built with a renewal idea to it, and it also has these, uh, this uh, elaborate system of sacrifices and washings to, to show how sinful human beings can relate to a holy God. In Exodus 40, when the tabernacle is filled or finished, it says the glory of the Lord filled it. And this was the way, this was the the primary place, this was the the symbol of God's presence, of how he would relate with sinners through sacrifices and through washings. But that tabernacle, that temple, was, was amazing, but it was only temporary. Ezekiel prophesied of a new and greater temple that would come later. Listen to Ezekiel 37, verse 25. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. 
See, even in the midst of that temple system, there were promises to say there's a new and greater temple coming. There's a new and greater presence of God that is coming. And the, the next way, the third way we see God's presence is through the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation. The eternal Son of God becomes a human being, a real human being, like us in every way except that he did not sin. So that as we behold Christ, we can say we behold God because God has dwelt among us. His name was Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, John 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, in Christ, the, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. If the, the temple was a, was a system, but it was no match for, for Christ. Jesus is the one who ultimately restores us to the uh, presence to God. He's the one who lived the life that we were meant for, the true, holy, and perfect life. He then died that, the death that we needed or that we deserved. He was, the, he was the true sacrifice. And in him we are washed. In him we are cleansed so that we might come to the holy of holies. We might come before God. It is Christ who restores us to the presence of God. If you feel distant from God because of your sin, we have a word for that. It's called conviction. If you feel convicted over your sin and say, God can never have a place with me, there's an aspect of that that is right. But God in his mercy and grace so loved the world, he so pursues you now, friend, that he has offered Christ as the substitute. He has offered Christ as the one to bring you into his presence so that through faith in him and repentance of sin, you are now restored, reconciled to the holy God and now in his presence. And the fourth way we see the presence of God manifested on earth is through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that it was, it's better that I go, that the Holy Spirit come. Upon our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. He, he does the work of regeneration so that we might behold Christ, that we might be saved. He, he, he cleanses us. He, he changes us. He convicts us of sin. And he is God with us. He's the one who dwells among us. Jesus said in the Great Commission, Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And God is with us always through his spirit. We are not alone. And then finally, we see the new heavens and the new earth. As wonderful as, as relating with God through his spirit now, as, as wonderful as it is for God to be with us, he is but a guarantee. He is but the, he is but the deposit of something that will come greater later. In the new heavens, and the new earth, this is where God's people will dwell with him perfectly. At the end of time, when all things are made new, God will dwell. It's just why in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, that John writes, he sees the, a new heaven and a new earth coming out. He sees a, a new city, the holy city Jerusalem, coming out from heaven. And he says there, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And behold, there, there will be no tears. There will be no death. There will be no pain. See, in God's presence, for God's people, there is nothing but great joy. We will always be with the Lord. And in Revelation 22, we see this river that comes out. This river that makes glad the city of God, it flows through. It, it is the joy of all of the new heavens and the new earth. See, this God is simultaneously on his throne and with his people. Because this is why he, he's on his throne, because that's why kingdoms totter. 
The nations rage. We read that in Psalm 2 several weeks ago. The nations rage. The people's plot in vain because they're plotting against the one who is on the throne. So when he speaks, the earth melts. When he speaks, it's like butter in the sunshine. Everything falls at his voice. He is on the throne and he is with his people. Brothers and sisters, God is present with us. You are not alone. And the psalmist writes to encourage God's people to be reminded that he is a fortress who secures his people. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you enjoy God's presence? Does the presence of God terrify you? Okay, that's where you might need to get right with God. Do you pray to the Holy Spirit, asking that the Holy Spirit would fill you, convict you, testify to you, encourage you, train you in righteousness? Do you know that the Holy Spirit is present with you now? That he enables gifts, that he enables service, that he testifies to us as a church uniquely, that God dwells among us in our gathering? God is present with you. You have no need to fear. That's our second building block of the fortress of God. And now the final one. The final building block is God's works. God's works. God does wondrous works so we can be still. God does wondrous works so we can be still. Look at verse 8. Psalmist concludes, Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Behold God's works. See, some have said that they think that uh, Psalm 46 was written during um, the time of Hezekiah's reign when the Assyrians came against Jerusalem, against the people of Judah. And that's possible. We just can't be 100% certain. So we should avoid stating that with, uh, with, with certainty. And yet, at the same time, we can say it's a wonderful illustration to what we see described here. In, in 2 Kings 18 and 19, we see this story and the Assyrians under King Sennacherib come to Hezekiah and they say, hey, we're going to conquer you like we conquered everybody else. There's no way you can stand against this. Assyria would have been the dominant force of that day. And they come before Judah and they send messengers to Hezekiah and say, it's not even worth trying to defend yourself. They speak to the people around in that gathering. They say, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. There is nothing he can do to stop us. And then they speak to Hezekiah. And they say, don't you dare think that your God can do anything. We've conquered those people. Their God didn't do a thing. We conquered these people and their God was worthless. Don't you think that Yahweh can save you? Hezekiah and the people knew that they were no match physically for the Assyrians. They were, there was no way that they could defend themselves. So what did they do? They prayed. Why would they pray? Well, because they knew that God was a, a refuge and strength. They knew that he was a very present help in time of trouble. And they were in trouble, so they went to the refuge and strength. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that night. They said, he said that this is the word of the Lord, that the Assyrians will not step foot in this city. The Assyrians will lose and there won't even be an arrow fired. And that very night, 
that very night while the Assyrians were sleeping, an angel of the Lord came to their camp and killed 185,000 in the Assyrian army. Sennacherib got up, went home. And as he was worshiping his God, his own kids killed him. So Sennacherib, who was the real fortress? Could his God save him? No. But what did Yahweh do? Yahweh shatters the bow of the oppressor. Yahweh protects his people. Behold the wondrous works of God. So, so how can God's people be confident in light of his words? They're told to be still and know that I am God. What, what's remarkable about this point in the hymn is that now, rather than the psalmist speaking, we see God speaking. God is the one, in light of his wondrous works, who says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. I'm the one who will get all praise, all glory, all worship, because he is all powerful. Brothers and sisters, can you, sometimes in life, you don't need, you don't need to do something. Sometimes you just need to stand there. Stand there and behold Christ. Stand there and behold that God is the true God and nothing can move him. Behold his wondrous works. And the most wondrous work that we have to behold today is the death and resurrection of Christ. See, God fights their battles. The, the people of Israel were able to look back through, the, through their history, through their time, and they were able to watch how God had worked on their behalf, and they could behold him, and they could be still and know that he is God. And we, as God's people today, can look back at the past and be able to behold that God still does marvelous works, and nothing greater than the death of Christ for our sin and his resurrection from the dead. Many people wrongly conclude that Christians simply have blind faith in Christ, that there's really no reason to believe, and that's, that's not true. We believe that, that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. And if you're investigating Christianity today, if you're just still considering whether or not this is true, you need to decide whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead as a historical fact or not. If he didn't rise from the dead, then, he's, then he was false to his promises, and there's no reason for us to waste our time anymore. But if he did rise from the dead, if he did do that wondrous work, if a dead man really got up out of the grave, then everything he said is true. And Christian, that means that God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in time of trouble. He is a mighty fortress who secures his people. I said I would get back to Martin Luther. Luther hated God. He read the scriptures and felt overwhelmed by God's judgment. He knew that his sin cast him out of God's presence. He, he said, I hated the God who was righteous. I hated the righteousness of God. Luther only saw God as the judge and not as the savior until he said, that the just are made righteous through faith. He recognized that it was through faith alone, in Christ alone, that, that a sinner is made righteous. And, and when he did that, he felt altogether born again. He, he had the spiritual awakening that God was no longer just the judge, but he was the father. He was the one who restored. He was the savior through Christ. Luther struggled a lot in life. 
Starting the Reformation uh, uh, to get rid of the, the errors of the Catholic Church, to get rid of the mysticism that was there, the, the, to, to say, no, it's the, the Word of God and, uh, who's working through the Son of God. That we're not made righteous through our works, but it is through Christ alone. He was told to recant of his writings. He says, no, I, those are the, these are the scriptures. My, he said, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I, I cannot recant. And he wrote one of the most amazing hymns of church history on this psalm, Psalm 46. A mighty fortress is our God. And Luther, who struggled at times with God as a fortress, with God as a judge, was able to write, a mighty fortress is our God, a board never failing. So as we sing this now, we sing not as the ones who, who waffle along, who are, who are terrified of our circumstances, who struggle in the midst of the storm. We sing about the fortress of God who secures his people.